Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQD in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Our hometown, Annalee Newitz, has a new book out, The Terraformers. It's science fiction set tens of thousands of years into the future, and there are indeed flying moose and wormholes, a variety of artificial intelligences, and wild synthetic biology. But there's a lot of Newitz's future that we recognize as part of our core urban problem set now. Real estate developers, environmental imbalances, transit surveys, and janky contracts. It's a wildly inventive, funny, smart take on what happens when the real estate industry scales up to planetary levels and an incisive look at the hierarchies that Homo sapiens seems prone to create. That's all coming up next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're joined this morning by Annalie Newitz, a true Bay Area character. She's a journalist and a science fiction writer, a thinker whose work is always surprising, as concerned with the deep past as the long future. For someone whose core themes are the elusive search for freedom from servitude, the expansion of dignity to all kinds of persons, the collapse of civilizations and environmental devastation— Her new novel, The Terraformers, is anything but grim and foreboding. It's filled with jokes and resilience and lovely romance, a profusion of wild body forms and formats, sentient trains, and swimming in a caldera lake. Joining us to talk about the new book and the worldview that informs her world building, welcome Annalie Newitz. Hi, thanks for having me. So I want you to set up the world of Terraformers a little bit. Like, how deep in the future are we? What's happening? What of our current civilization has been cast off and kind of what remains? So it's set just a mere 60,000 years in the future. Uh, So a lot has changed. And the novel takes place on a planet called Saski, which is being developed by an interstellar real estate company. And the novel is really in the communities of people who are doing the development for the company. So it's not... It's not about kind of movers and shakers or 
um, titans of industry. It's about workers, construction workers, people who are putting forests together and building land masses for eventual buyers. And a lot of the action focuses on a group called the Environmental Rescue Team. And they are, by the time the book happens, kind of an ancient organization. And I've been telling people that they're a little bit like Lassie's Rescue Rangers in space because <laughs> they, are, they are there to be first responders when there's an environmental crisis or when there's a humanitarian crisis, as we discover later in the book. And they're a group of people who include not just homo sapiens, but also dogs, cats, worms, naked mole rats, moose, uh, and many other non-human animals who are now able to communicate with uh, homo sapiens using brain implants that let them text. So you can have a cat who is, looks like a cat, sounds like a cat, but while it's yowling, can send you a message saying, Get out of my way. <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll eat you if you die. Yeah. <laughs> yeah right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Although I, not in this world because they're, they're not going to eat each other. They're that's much true. nicer that's than point. that. <laughs> that's um, how do we get to this point where all of these different uh, non-human animals are, you know, really considered people? Like they're, they're people with all the rights and kind of responsibilities of people. Um, what's the sort of mechanism by which that happens? So we hear a little bit in the book over different scenes that there's this deep history where Earth has gone through an incredible environmental crisis. And again, this is part of such distant history that it's almost like mythology um, mm. or just storytelling at the time that the novel takes place. But we know that the planet has been inundated with floods, uh, that the resources have been depleted, people are starving. And so at that moment, uh, which is in our future, there arises a group of activists who are interested in uh, what they call farm revolution. And the farm revolutions are basically a much more sophisticated version of the green revolutions that we've already seen in our lifetimes, where people use synthetic biology and other kinds of sophisticated ge genetic engineering to create crops that can withstand uh, climate transformation, but also, really importantly, the nascent environmental rescue team decides that the only way that they can continue to engage in land management is if they invite other non-human animals to the table to bargain with them about how the land should be used. They mm. feel that in the past, Homo sapiens has been incredibly uh, narcissistic <laughs> and has right. used the land only the way Homo sapiens wants. And so they begin to experiment with building domestic animals like cows that can text and can say, actually, I'd really like for you to do this with the land. And that's, that's sort of how the environmental rescue team is born. And by the time we see them 60,000 years in the future, they're a fully fledged organization across many planets. And many, many non-human animals have joined them in the great bargain to uh, manage the environment. That's right. That concept of the great bargain is a very sticky and fun thing to be thinking about. And yeah. I also love we get little bits in the book, right, of the environmental rescue team's handbook, like basically these biblical passages or, or you know, holy text kind of passages that are kind of passed down that people kind of use in their everyday thing, you know, like everything in balance, right? 
Mm-hmm. It's more, it's funny because the environmental rescue team handbook is more supposed to be an engineering handbook. It's like a, it's like the Unix handbook for the environment or something. <laughs> um, so it doesn't, I don't think the characters see it as biblical, but they do see it as important historical knowledge. And yeah. so there is a kind of collapse between science and engineering and um, and the world of the mystical, you might say. Mm-hmm. So they don't they don't necessarily make a huge distinction between the two things, but they very much believe that environmental balance is a moral duty as well as a scientific and engineering goal. Yeah. So there's been a lot of talk recently in some parts of the speculative fiction world about cli-fi, this realm of science fiction that's largely concerned with futures around, you know, environmental change. So even though this book is set tens of thousands of years in the future, would you put it on that cli-fi shelf if you were running the bookstore? I mean, I think any book that's about the future has to deal with climate change. So I would put it in the shelf of books dealing with the future in a a kind of reasonable or plausible way. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think you know, it's really great that in science fiction, a lot of writers like Kim Stanley Robinson, who I know has been a guest on the show, Mm -hmm. um, have really foregrounded that and made a point of saying, listen, like, we really need to be thinking this through in our fiction if we're going to tackle it in reality, because stories often lead the way toward things like policy and toward changing the way we live. And so um, I hope that the terraformers can be part of that, of people rethinking their relationship to non-human animals and to the environment. One of the things that really struck me is, you know, as a as an old sci-fi head, like when I was a kid, I would go to like the paperback bookstore, you know, and just churn through yeah. uh, bad, bad uh, 1980s sci-fi. You know, terraforming is, you know, one of these hallmarks of the of the genre, this ability to kind of transform the way that that planets work. One thing that's super interesting in this book is like you're kind of getting down into the contractual obligations of terraforming. <laughs> and, you know, cities are also seeded in this world. Like that's they're almost they're more akin to like terraforming a forest than they are something else. Was that an intentional component of this to kind of put humans into this terraforming equation in all these different ways? Yeah, absolutely. And I have been always really interested in a branch of architecture and urban design that tries to incorporate nature. Um, There's a lot of architects that are working on this now. Um, The idea of building with living materials and having self-healing structures for our buildings. But also, more importantly, this is a planet that's being developed by a real estate agency to sell to homo sapiens, right? So they have to have places to live. Um, It's kind of like they're building an eco resort crossed with Disney World. And so part of the contractual obligation of this uh, development company is that they have to build cities and they have to build a transit system to connect the cities in order to um, meet their obligations to their future buyers. And so one of the things I really loved in this book was thinking about how cities themselves are ecosystems and Mm -hmm. how farms are part of that. And so one of the things that we see over and over in this book is that anytime characters encounter a city, they also encounter enormous farmlands and agricultural areas to feed those cities because farms and cities are pretty much contiguous. Like they absolutely develop around the same time and they feed on each other. You can't have one without the other, really. Yeah. We're talking with writer Annalie Newitz about their new sci-fi novel, The Terraformers. 
We'd love to hear from you. What do you think is happening in the year 60,000? What issues are we're struggling with do you think we'll still be trying to figure out in many thousands of years? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or KQED Forum. And the email is forum at kqed.org. So I know also you did a lot of research. I mean, you're a nonfiction writer and a journalist as well and have been for a long time. Um, what was the most fun interview you did trying to, like, research what this world 60,000 years in the future might uh, look like? There were a ton of really great ones. I talked to geologists. I talked to atmospheric scientists. But I have to say, probably the most fun I had was talking to uh, San Francisco head of transit, Jeffrey Tumlin, um, <laughs> who... I wanted to talk to you about trains because a big part of this book is about building public transit. And one of the characters in the book is a sentient flying train. And, you know, because there's lots of robots, so why not have a sentient train? And so I was asking um, Jeff about like, you know, um, all the wonky stuff about how does a city develop transit? How do you have intercity transit? And, and I was really trying to be quite serious about like, how can I have a realistic representation of the legal issues surrounding it? Um, and so we, we talked about that for a while. And finally, I was like, listen, I have a character who's a train. And I'm just wondering, do you have any thoughts on what a train consciousness might be like. <laughs> and apparently he had been like waiting his whole life for someone to ask him that question. He had a huge amount of, of information about what, what he thought trains would be like if they were um, sentient, which made me feel really happy that someone who's running transit is thinking about trains as people. Um, and his main um, observation was that trains would be obsessed with strategy games if they were conscious. Mm. And because, of course, trains are constantly optimizing and thinking about, like, the best way to go somewhere and how to be, um, you know, serving the public um, in the most efficient way. And so my train character, whose name is Scrub Jay, is, in fact, obsessed with strategy games. And the entire section of the book devoted to Scrub Jay is about Scrub Jay um, getting getting away from playing corporate video games and getting interested in indie games. <laughs> uh, true San Francisco passions here. Uh, we're talking with writer Annalie Newitz about their new sci-fi novel, The Terraformers, also the author of the nonfiction books Four Lost Cities and Scatter, Adapt, and Remember, and the co-host of the podcast Our Opinions Are Correct. I'm Alexis Magical. Stay tuned with, for more with Annalie right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrew. We're talking with writer Annalie Newitz about their new sci-fi novel, The Terraformers. Uh, mentioned the nonfiction books before. Also the author of the novels uh, Autonomous and, wait, Annalie, what's the other one's title? <laughs> Future of Another Timeline. There it is. Future of Another Timeline. I knew that. Um, <laughs> uh, we So we were talking about the sentient trains in the first uh, segment of the show. There's a piece of the book where the trains sing together. There's like a gathering of the trains. And without, you know, giving away too much or spoiling too much, we wanted to listen in to that scene, which, um, do you want to set anything up about like how this came together, Annalie? Yeah, so this is from the audiobook, And this is a scene where um, the planet is kind of in crisis. Uh, there are a bunch of people on the planet who are protesting, trying to take the planet into being a public planet as opposed to a privately owned planet. And the trains are deciding whether to join this group. And so they're having a vote. And one of and Scrub Jay, the train, and Scrub Jay's friend, who is an investigative journalist cat named Moose, have come <laughs> to the vote. And this is what happens. Scrub right. Jay's remote bumped into the cat gently, enjoying their warmth. No, you foolish mammal. We're going to sing. Listen, it's already started. The cat cocked their ears and heard nothing but the buzz of insects and calls of distant birds. Slowly, the buzzing and calling grew louder, and a rolling beat thumped beneath it. The air filled with a cacophony of bees, which disintegrated into the sound of footsteps on sidewalks. of feet pounding, pounding. Then came the sound of a windstorm from every direction, and inside it, the voices of moose and dogs roaring. That was a snippet of the audiobook of The Terraformers put out by Macmillan Audio, uh, the book, of course, by Annalie Newitz, our guest this morning. You know, one of the things that's fascinating about that section is mm-hmm. you had to imagine how would, like, the culture of the trains, the culture of these sentient trains. And in throughout this book, it's, it's laced through everything that there are all these other types of people aside from Homo sapiens and what their cultures and practices would look like. Um, tell us a little bit more about how you tried to think that through, like what the worm people would be like and, you know, what the cat people. Yeah. Um, so part of it was a way of thinking about just cultural difference in general. And I don't, I didn't want any of these non-human animals to be kind of 
cliched Disney versions of themselves. Like I didn't want it to be like, oh, well, people who are cats love to fight and, you know, mm. trains love to crash into things. I didn't want it to feel mm -hmm. cliched. I wanted it to be complicated. And so when we meet non-human animals who are people, um, they're often at odds with each other. Like we see them arguing, they have different perspectives. Um, but at the same time, I did want to be true to their morphologies. Um, and so uh, one of the things that the trains can do is they can record sound and they view the world as this kind of cascade of visuals and sound. And because they're moving so rapidly over the landscape, it gets blurred together. And that's why when they come together to vote, part of what they're doing is talking about what they've seen. Mm -hmm. And the way that they're communicating that is by saying, well, I've heard the wind, I've heard bees, I've heard people in cities, I've seen these kinds of people. Um, and so I was kind of imagining that when they were voting, Partly they're having um, a back channel conversation. They're texting each other like crazy, but, it, but they're also singing about the kind of background of what has brought them to their opinions. Um, but with other uh, non-human animal characters, like there is a, there is a character who's a moose, um, not to be confused with the cat named moose. <laughs> There's a moose named Whistle. And I did do a lot of research on... Um, moose emotion, like how moose express emotion. And there's this great journal called Alcest, which is just devoted to the management of moose and um, people who observe moose and who oftentimes like park rangers and stuff. And so I did learn that when moose are happy, they kick up their heels and that they also um, play when they swim. And so I have the character Whistle, the moose, when he's happy, he, he kind of goes into the water and kicks up his heels and splashes and so we see him having these kind of characteristic moose emotional expressions, but at the same time, he has very relatable problems. He's fallen in love with another moose who kind of looks down on him and they have this difficult romance. And so, um, you know, some, some problems cross species lines. Like yeah. there's always going to be romantic issues, whether you're a moose or a cat or a train. <laughs> <laughs> do you, do you think I mean this seems like the explosion of personhood and the conversations that people have about it in this book because it's not as if everything is going smoothly there are hierarchies no. and there are problems <laughs> and there's yeah. what we would kind of I don't know uh, sapiensism or something mm -hmm. um, there, do you think that conversation is going to be driven more by the emergence of different emerging artificial intelligences? Or do you think it's actually going to be more a greater recognition of kind of the wonder of biological brains that are not human? That's such a good question. I think that it's happening kind of at the same time. Um, one of the things that has been so interesting over the past couple of years is we've seen a lot of um, popular science books coming out about animal consciousness and perception. Um, Ed Yong, who's a very uh, fine science writer, who your former friend colleague. of the show. Yeah. Yeah. Friend <laughs> of the show. Um, his new book um, is all about uh, animal perception. Um, Bethany Brookshire has a new book out, um, which is called Pests, which is all about why we demonize certain kinds of animals and um, how we kind of create mm -hmm. legends and myths around like, um, you know, skunks and rats and things like that and say that they're degraded creatures. And so I think we've partly because we're thinking about what it means to be conscious because we're 
commodifying intelligence with all of our silly AI devices that we're working on right now here in the Silicon Bay area. <laughs> um, I think that it's, it's, ask it's people are starting to ask questions about well what do we mean when we say that something is conscious what do we mean when we say intelligence you know if we can have a conversation with chat gpt why not have a conversation with a cat or a moose or a worm um and why not use technology to help out with that and so i think as we move forward and we start to hopefully understand better how much we depend on our environment, on all of the animals and plants in our environment, um, we're going to start to realize that we're not the most important brains around. You know what I mean? That Homo sapiens is not the only thinking creature. It's Homo sapiens is not the only creature who's important to the environment. Um, and so that's kind of what I imagine the deep history is of this book, is that people have spent a really long time screwing up, screwing up the environment, screwing up their relationships with each other and with other non-human animals and have said, you know what, some of us are going to try a different way. Why don't we try thinking about ourselves as part of a system, part of a, a balanced ecosystem where Homo sapiens is just one of many important life forms, um, you know, maybe not even the most important one. In some ecosystems, maybe bees are the most important um, or maybe um, banyan trees are the most important. Who knows? But the point is that we kind of, we have to reach a point where we sort of decenter ourselves. And some of that means like letting go of the idea that we have a super special form of cognition and realize that, oh, actually, you know, we're just one kind of cognition among many and ours might not even be the best one. Yeah. You know, it, it reminds me of some of this like very early work that's been done where people are trying to kind of like to use basic Google Translate for dolphin sounds. You've probably <laughs> run, run into this yeah. one point or another. And, you know, try and get into the water. And, you know, people see that they're, that, you know, dolphins oftentimes will use very similar sequences of clicks and whistles around certain things and trying to actually build that translation module, which has so far, you know, escaped human beings in part because the frequencies are not great for our ears. And it mm -hmm. kind of is like you can... I could see that as like one starting point for this kind of communication, right? Um, in, in if you spin it forward, you know, five hundred years. Absolutely, and that is one of the things I was thinking about because there are a lot of scientists now who are gathering sounds from um, dolphins, whales, um, from uh, ravens and crows, and all kinds of uh, other non-human animals who clearly seem to have culture and are passing that culture on to their to their young. And I mean, one of the things with dolphins that I think is great and whales is that scientists have discovered that they have unique sets of sounds for each other. And you'll read papers, scientific papers, where they're like, well, it's kind of like a name. And it's like, <laughs> it is a name. It is a name. <laughs> yeah, right. it's, it's kind of like a name. <laughs> yeah. Um, just like we have unique sounds for each other. Um, so, yeah, I think that um, technology is going to help us um, maybe decipher what other non-human animals are saying and doing. Let's uh, take a few phone calls. Uh, Dan in Albany, you're on with Annalie Newitz. Hi, can you hear me? Yeah, sure can. Go ahead. Yeah, I love the conversation you guys are having, talking about like the explosion of personhood and translating the languages of animals and such. So my question is, 
I often think about how science fiction from decades ago is notorious for not predicting the directions that some aspects of human life and culture would go. So when you look back at science fiction from like the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and I could be wrong, but like how many sci-fi books or movies were there that predicted gay marriage in the 2010s and 2020s? I mean, to my knowledge, it's like close to zero. And so I think to myself, are there aspects of human relationships and life and culture and society that might be too taboo right now in 2023 for us to predict those taboos would be changed by, say, the 2060s or the 3000s or what, you know, whatever it is? Mm-hmm. So my question for your guest is: my question for your guest is, what are your thoughts on the kind of the, the kind of failures or hesitancy of sci-fi writers and thinkers to predict things that might change that right now are taboo. And I'll take my question off the air. Thank you. Hey, Dan in Albany. Thank you. That's a great uh, question. Yeah, that's yeah. such a great question. So I wanted to start by addressing um, what he was saying about whether science fiction kind of predicted gay marriage or dealt with, with homosexuality um, before, like, basically the 21st century. And indeed it did. Um, I actually learned to be queer from science fiction um, (laughs) in the early 80s when I was first reading SF. And um, I'm going to recommend a book uh, for nerds who want to, like, immerse themselves in early queer SF. So David Gerald, who is probably most famous for writing the Trouble with Tribbles episode of (laughs) Star Trek, where all of the little fluffy creatures start reproducing on the Enterprise and everybody is surrounded by little squeaking fluffy creatures. So David Gerald um, is queer and has written a lot about that. And uh, one of his first novels, which came out in the very early 70s, is called The Man Who Folded Himself. And it's about a guy who gets a time travel device that allows him to meet himself and he meets himself over and over again. And all of his different selves start renting a condo together. And they all start having like giant gay orgies. And it's it, like the early 70s. And it's just this giant gay orgy time travel book in a condo timeshare kind of thing. Um, and uh, it's yeah, that really kind of delightful. You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> so I'm just saying like science fiction, even before that, um, you know, Samuel Delaney was writing science fiction in the, in the 50s and 60s. And had lots of hints about gayness in there. So I think that things that are taboo um, in the mainstream culture often do bubble up in science fiction because science fiction and fantasy are both a kind of safe space for our imaginations where we can say, oh, well, that's just imaginary. So, um, you know, but I mean, might now that be- science fiction is so mainstream relative to where it was in the past, do you think that's changing? Or do you think there's always a kind of sub rosa science fiction that is exploring those things? Yeah, I think that even with science fiction being very mainstream, you know, with things like Wakanda Forever being like one of the top movies ever or Star Wars being, you know, something mm-hmm. that, you know, occupies most of Disneyland at this point. I think that it's still a place where people can let their imaginations roam free and they can explore topics that feel too difficult to face in reality. For example, um, the Star Wars show Andor, which was all about a violent rebellion against um, colonial oppression and um, Mm -hmm. against basically authoritarianism like what we're dealing with on, on Earth right now. A lot of people wouldn't want to watch a documentary about that. But people were sucked into the story 
and did empathize with the characters of the insurrectionaries who are doing things that are kind of morally gray. Mm -hmm. And I think, and I'm not saying that that's great to, to do things like blow up, you know, um, you know, blow up spaceships or <laughs> blow up, um, you know, various facilities where civilians are working. But I do think that science fiction still lets us imagine things that we wouldn't let ourselves imagine in real life. So to get to the final bit piece of that question, like what could we be thinking about now that might be taboo? Um, you know, it depends on your taboo because I think one of the things that's happening in the real world right now is we're starting to see a lot more labor organizing and there's a lot of taboos against that, especially here in the Bay Area where like a lot of tech companies have been very anti-union and have worked hard to crush their unions. But in science fiction, we see all these representations of people coming together to fight against corporate overlords. And a lot of techies are reading that science fiction and I think it's spilling over into real life. And so things that were once taboo like imagining a union at your tech workplace, um, you know, they're starting to feel more realistic, especially after, you know, companies decide to arbitrarily lay off lots of people for reasons that seem completely opaque. Mm. You know, one key plot point in the book kind of revolves around the creation of and this kind of uneven adherence to a treaty between the corporate settlement entity and this band of sort of previous peoples. I don't mm -hmm. want to do too much of a, of a spoiler here. Yeah. But how much did you want this book to be read at, as kind of colonial allegory? Oh, totally. It's totally a, an allegory about uh, imperialism and colonialism. And a lot of it does touch on specifically California um, and how California has experienced colonialism. And, you know, a big part of the book is also about gentrification. So it's very much coming out of my own experiences here. Um, but yeah, there's um, a section in the book where a treaty is struck over water rights, which will be familiar to anyone who um, knows the history of this country and how the U.S. government dealt with various indigenous tribes. And the, the wording in the treaty is actually taken from a, a real treaty that was um, struck between the U.S. government um, and, a, and a confederacy of tribes um, in the 18th century. It's a peace and a, uh, it's a peace treaty, basically saying that uh, neither group will harm the other. Um, and so I kind of just, like I said, no I just sort of lifted wholesale from this previous treaty because um, these were treaties that were were constantly being signed, and then of course um, were being violated. Uh, over and over oh, again. I wondered, I wondered how much that was based on those things. That's so fascinating. We're talking with the writer Annalie Newitz about their new sci-fi novel, The Terraformers. We're also taking some of your calls for Annalie. If you've got questions about the book and the conversation we've been having about personhood and kind of the ways we'll deal with the environment in the future, you can give us a call. It's 866-733-6786. If you're a general sci-fi nerd... What's something you've read or watched in science fiction that's now come true that we could talk about? The number's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, we're KQED Forum. And Jonathan tweets, so cool and fascinating to hear Annalie Newitz discuss their new book. I'm definitely going to get it. We'll be back with more Forum right after the break. 
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. We're talking with writer Annalie Newitz about their new sci-fi novel, The Terraformers. So one thing that's really unusual about this book and really struck me is how much time and attention you dedicate to the processes of decision-making. Like people, especially in this sort of autonomous zone called Spider City, you really get into sort of like, how do people make decisions in this future world where we're trying to imagine these sort of better relationships with each other and the environment. Can you talk a little bit about kind of what you drew on for trying to think through some of those processes? Yeah. So part of it grew out of just thinking about how you would have democracy on a local level. So all of these groups who are making decisions are cities. So they're not trying to be you know, serving millions and millions and millions of people the way we do with our national government here in the U.S., And I wanted to have something like a city council or, um, you know, another kind of like council of elders type group that was leading discussions. And so in Spider City, which is the autonomous city, um, they have a council and they have, um, you know, a rotating group of people who serve in the council And the main thing that I wanted to include was that um, they have simple majority rule on votes, but they have this idea that there is, that the minority, the group that kind of loses the vote always gets one concession. So you never go away from the table having lost everything. So a lot of the most bitter debates come up when the minority is trying to figure out what concession they're going to get. And so there are these long council meetings. Um, one of the chapters in the book is literally called the worst council meeting ever, <laughs> something like that. Because um, I think we've all definitely been in a those Bay Area meetings. book. Bay Area book. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, and I was thinking about everything from you know what was going on before the Constitution was ratified in the United States when people were having debates in the Federalist Papers and the Anti-Federalist Papers about how power should work um, to having gone to, you know, city council meetings. Um, And I I wanted to just show really that even in the future, when we have maybe a better handle on how democracy could work or how um, small groups could make decisions maybe better than big groups, you're still going to have acrimony. You're still going to have people who are so angry that they rage quit the the meeting. Um, And that's not something that we can solve with taking a pill or 
genetically engineering ourselves, that's something that we have to solve through the really difficult process of having meetings and like having discussions. And sometimes those meetings are going to be really freaking annoying. <laughs> and it's just, I think it's just a, a part of democracy that as one of the characters says, like, yeah, politics are really annoying, but yeah. we have to do them. Yeah. Um, let's bring in uh, Jay in Pleasanton. Welcome, Jay. Well, thank you for taking my call. A quick comment and a question, actually. Um, for a long time, I've been interested in the genre of sci-fi that I think I heard one of you refer to as cli-fi, a term I hadn't heard before, but sort of climate-driven stories. And the first one I'm aware of, I read, I'm 68 years old, but I read this over 50 years ago, the book that became the movie Soylent's Green, mm-hmm. which to my knowledge was the first climate-driven uh, uh, story, at least it became a major Hollywood film. And <clears throat> a lot of that's coming through to now, actually, a lot of the issues are in that movie are, are, are happening now with dying, dying oceans. My, my question is, <clears throat> the writer Kurt Vonnegut used to say, use the phrase, um, you are what you pretend to be, so be very careful about what you pretend to be. And it, it's always bothered me that so many sci-fi stories, especially the ones that get made into films, have dystopian bad futures. And I think we need to start envisioning better futures if we expect to have one. So I guess my question is, does your story, if I read it, give me hope? Is it a hopeful mm-hmm. story? Mm-hmm. Thanks. That's a good question, Jay. Um, thanks so much for that. Yeah, that is a good question. And I, I think there is now a really strong movement among speculative fiction writers, people who are doing science fiction and fantasy, to imagine more hopeful futures. And I think it's for the exact reason that you mentioned, which is that we need to have stories that light a way forward for us um, and that give us a model for communities we could start building, for ways that we could relate to the environment and relate to each other politically. And so the Terraformers was very deliberately my attempt to show a more hopeful future. But I will say that as I was mentioning earlier, I don't believe that conflict will go away. I I don't think a hopeful future is a future without conflict. I don't think it's a future where we have defeated the forces of greed or that capitalism has magically disappeared. Um, I think it's a future where we see characters trying to do better and succeeding. And so that is, I mean, this is not really a spoiler. The book does chronicle a very long revolution. And that grows out of the fact that I believe that revolutions do actually take a very long time. To have a very positive, progressive revolution takes generations. And so the book takes place over about 1,600 years. (laughs) Um, So So um, that gives you hope. I don't know. Yeah. um, I mean, but I think what we see in the book is many different strategies that the characters have for coming together as communities and pushing back against systemic oppression. And again, that's why it needs to be so long because systemic oppression isn't like, oh, there's one bad actor. If we get rid of her, magically, we don't have this problem anymore. Systemic oppression is like, okay, we've had systems in place for hundreds of years that oppress particular groups. Those kinds of problems are built into many of our favorite institutions, many of our most powerful institutions. We have to unravel all of that. So unraveling all of that takes a really long time. And I think part of what makes a story like the Terraformers hopeful is that we have the time and the space 
to pull out and get this broader view of the arc of history. And we can see, look, things that we do in one lifetime actually do make a difference for people who come much, much later. And that it feels like maybe we're running in place right now, but in 200 years, people will be like, oh, thank goodness that they did that 200 years ago, because now we can build on it. Mm. And so that's what I wanted to show is that there is hope as long as you think in a more long-term way, which we have to do if we're thinking about the climate. Yeah. You know, I wanted to ask you about some of the things that I think are, are floating around in the kind of future world. Um, you know, we talked, we touched briefly on ChatGPT and the, you know, kind of these large language models as they're known, which are able to kind of produce this, uh, these strings of text that uh, can seem miraculous to some people, can seem uh, far less than miraculous to other people. How have you found a way to make sense of those for yourself, just as a nonfiction writer who's covered technology, you know, for 20 years and mm -hmm. for and as a, as a fiction writer, too? Yeah, I mean, I sometimes think of chat GPT as being kind of like a horoscope where it's, you know, it kind of is whatever you mm. want to read into it. And so if you want to think that it's completely relevant and really important, it is. Otherwise, it's not. Um, but really, a lot of the AI that people are excited about right now, the term AI is really a marketing term. Like there is no actual human equivalent intelligence here. Um, it is as many uh, researchers in the field, like Timnit Gebru, who was the uh, whistleblower at Google, who pointed out that their, that their uh, AI system was really biased. Um, she calls it a stochastic parrot, uh, meaning that it's just chaotically reproducing stuff that people have already said. Um, and so I just think of it as a way that Silicon Valley is further commodifying various aspects of our lives. So now, now we have this way of commodifying intelligence and quantifying what we think of as intelligence and, and packaging it and selling it. Um, but it's really, it's not. It's just something that can imitate human speech. And so... Um, when I think about it in the context of science fiction, um, I have written a lot about, um, you know, human equivalent intelligence in robots and in machines. Um, and I think of them looking back on this era and being enraged by what humans are doing and how humans are setting out to create life forms by first commodifying them by first turning them into completely enslaved things that are designed entirely to serve us. And that's a terrible way to welcome a new form of life into the world. It's disgusting. And if we really think that we're developing something like a human equivalent life form, that we do deserve to be upbraided. You know, I hope that future mm. robots, sentient robots will say to us like, wow, that was really screwed up and dysfunctional, y'all. <laughs> right. That was the absolute worst way to start. So now we're going to start over again um, because it's it's a really uh, it's the it's the wrong way to begin. Well, and one of the ways that that gets expressed in the book is really that you know eating animal protein in the book is essentially no nobody does it except for these like kind of this one horrible guy at the beginning of the book, right? <laughs> like yeah. nobody does it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is a book where, you know, because of the fact that we've extended personhood to so many non-human life forms, 
um, it, it really is considered cannibalism if you if you were to eat a non-human animal. And in the same way, if you were to enslave a robot, it would be considered a crime, unless, of course, you are a company that has built that robot, uh, in which case you're legally allowed to own it, which is part of the, the complexity of, of my story, which is that, no, not all problems have been solved. Like, people are still trying to enslave artificial intelligences. They're trying to enslave each other. Um, and part of what my characters are fighting back against is that um, that impulse. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of enslaved uh, persons in this in this book, mm-hmm. many, many who are, who are all by corporations. Um, we're talking with writer Annalie Newitz about their new sci-fi novel, The Terraformers. They're also the author of the nonfiction books Four Lost Cities and Scatter, Adapt, and Remember, and also another great novel called Autonomous. They're also the co-host of the podcast, Our Opinions Are Correct. We've got a couple of uh, comments I want to get to here. Um, one listener writes in to say, Robert Highland, Stranger in a Strange Land, 1961, depicted gender as an afterthought in sexual relations. Been a while, but I remember the main character not knowing the gender of the co-worker he was going home with until they removed their spacesuits. Judd and SF writes, I'm going to order my copy of The Terraformers. I plan to add it to my collection of future possibilities, including The Three-Body Problem, Broken Earth Trilogy, and Kim Stanley Robinson's Ministry for the Future. That's a pretty good shelf. Um, this is a pledge time period for KQED Public Radio and public radio stations around the country. For more information about how to support KQED, go to kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Um, let's get to a couple more calls, Annalie. Let's go to uh, Ilea in Oakland. Welcome. Hi. Thank you for taking my question. Um, it's a question pretty much for just, you know, food for thought. Um, I grew up in the church and I was also, my dad was also a science fiction. Well, he still is a science fiction um, buff. Hmm. And uh, my question is how many Christian science fiction writers are there? And then my second question is just as a whole science fiction writers as a whole, how many kind of were influenced or got their stories from the Bible? Especially when you mentioned slavery, you know, slavery is in the Bible and also, you know, different arguments about who the people are. But that's my question. Yeah. What an interesting question, Ilya. Thank you so much for that uh, perspective. Yeah. Um, It's really interesting that you bring up the fact that uh, slavery and debates over slavery are in the Bible, because um, that is very central, especially in the Old Testament, um, to questions about how we should treat each other um, and what what it means to have dignity and and what it means to be, um, you know, treated with kindness. Um, And so I I don't know, like, I I don't know that there's any surveys out there of of how many science fiction writers are Christian. I mean, certainly um, some of our most famous uh, English language fantasy writers uh, were Christian. C.S. Lewis, um, who wrote the Narnia books, um, Tolkien, who wrote uh, the Lord of the Rings books, both of them were very religious and thought very deeply about Christianity and really um, are puzzling out a lot of questions, moral questions raised by Christianity in their work. So I do think that um, in the West, um, it is a huge uh, debate, you know, um, how, how to think about um, a better world and how, how much Christianity offers us um, a vision of a better world. Can we build such a world on earth? Should we not do that? Um, and, 
my background is I'm not a, a religious person. I was raised Jewish, uh, but I'm certainly, you know, steeped in the stories from the Bible, just like any American. So I think that these things uh, seep into the way we think about our work. Yeah. Um, great comment from uh, Liz in Oakland. Uh, this is a follow-up to the caller who asked about currently taboo topics. The Kim Stanley Robinson novel, The Ministry for the Future, broaches the taboo topic of murder to prevent further climate change. Also, gender fluidity is still somewhat taboo. There certainly have been sci-fi books where characters can freely change gender when they want. Still, the ones I read were rather male-female, and I predict in the future there will be many more non-binary people. Um, You want to take one or both of those uh, kind of questions embedded in there? Sure. Um, So in the Terraformers, almost all of the characters are (laughs) non-binary. So um, they are, I mean, this is 60,000 years in the future. So um, people have all different approaches to gender. There's one point where characters from off the planet meet some characters who live on the planet, Saski, and the people from off world always introduce themselves with their pronouns. Um, and the people who live on Saskia are like, oh, how quaint. You know, we just use, um, we have, you know, uh, brain implants that just sort of signal people what our pronouns are. We don't have to say it out loud. That's so, so funny. Um, and, you know, but other groups don't seem to care that much about pronouns at all. Um, and I kind of imagined that a lot of the differences that we ascribe to gender on Earth Um, would get mapped onto a whole range of other kinds Mm. of differences in this future. I mean, we have moose characters. We have a cat falling in love with a train. I mean, it's mutual. The train loves the cat, too. Don't worry. It's (laughs) it's requited. Um, But when you have that kind of difference, like gender difference is like just nothing. You know, it's like, okay, a train and a cat. Like, how does that work? Like, that's so much more complicated than like male versus female versus non-binary versus all the other genders that you could possibly imagine. So um, so this is a world where um, gender difference is like the least weird thing you're going to encounter. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are there are hominins who are kind of like off brand humans that have um, kind of a different anatomy. Anyway, you'll see if you read it. It's, yeah. it's a very it's a very non-binary world. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the things that's just such a delight in this book is just seeing all these different person and personages kind of interacting with each other in ways that feel so familiar, but also defamiliarize certain types of interactions just because of the way that their body morphologies show up or their, you know, consciousness um, tweaks. This is a really, really fun book. Very strong recommendation for everyone out there. You know Annalie very well from uh, the show and, you know, San Francisco. And uh, this book is just fully realized. Thank you so much for writing it, Annalie. Well, thank you so much for having me. And thanks for your kind words. Absolutely. Uh, We have been talking with the writer Annalie Newitz about their new sci-fi novel, The Terraformers, out now. Also have to put in a small plug for the audiobook, which has... um, sound effects and is kind of like a fully realized radio drama. Um, it's great. Newitz is also the author of the non-fiction books Four Lost Cities and Scatter Adapt and Remember, longtime journalist and is the co-host of the podcast Our Opinions Are Correct. This is Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Thanks for your calls and comments. Stay tuned for another Hour Ahead with guest host Rachel Myro.
funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.